Open your Bibles to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, this morning. It's not our text, but that's where we will launch from, because it's the beginning of the second half of the book of Isaiah that reveals something the Lord wants us to see this morning. I don't say that because I've had some vision, but because that's exactly what the Bible says. It tells us that the Lord wants us to see what we are going to behold this morning. We've set aside uh, our study in Ecclesiastes for the Christmas season, and we're, we're looking at three of the most significant points, significant moments in the Lord's life. We're looking at His coming. <clears throat> Today we're going to look at His cross. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to look at His future crowning. And we're going to finish out the book of Revelation next Sunday morning. And the common thread in all of these moments is is joy. And and that's exactly what the angels announced in the the shepherd's fields to the shepherd in Luke chapter 2. I bring you good tidings of great joy. And rightly so, because Jesus Christ brings joy to, to all people through, through His arrival. There's joy that comes from His arrival. There's, surely there's joy that comes from His work. I mean, where would we be without the cross of Jesus Christ? And, and then there's joy in His promised return. And, and as believers, we have the ability to see that, and we, we rejoice in that. And, and last week, we, we looked at the, the joy that resulted in, in God coming to earth. The, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we saw all of the, the, the allusions to the, uh, to the, to the Old Testament. And, and that is, that Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. And by Him, we, we see what God is really like, because He is God. And today, we'll, we'll look at the joy that we have in, in His cross, which is why, why He came. And we're going to do that from a passage uh, that tells about that work be, before the, the angels, before the shepherds, before Bethlehem, before the work of Jesus ever happened. It's, it's a passage in the Bible that not only declares how you can live forever and have the forgiveness of your sins, but it was written over 700 years before Jesus came to earth. Now, to give you uh, some concept of that, that time frame, it would be like a prophecy being given in around 1300 A.D., 200 years before Columbus, 300 years before Jamestown, and then it would, and then it would come, to, come to pass today. Typically, we, we look at the work of the cross, and we're on this side of it, so we look back to, to the cross. This morning, we're going to look at it from the other side, from the, from the front side, if you if you will. What would it have looked like for those who were looking for the Messiah's coming? What would it have looked like coming from a, a prophet's perspective before Christ came, rather than the apostles, the disciples, telling after Christ rose from, from the dead? Was the coming of Jesus discernible? Did the, the, the Jewish people expect a Savior to, to come, if all you had was the Old Testament, could you tell that, that the Messiah was Jesus Christ? Or is that just something that Gentile Christians have, have, uh, 
have worked together and come up with a, with a religion that they've kind of tacked on to, to Judaism. Well, beyond any doubt, there's, there's no place that's clearer. You can see this, this picture, this portrait, than from the, the prophet Isaiah. And the heart of the story, the, the beginning of the story, begins right here in Isaiah chapter, chapter 40. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel because the presentation of Jesus Christ is so clear. Luther said every Christian ought to be able to repeat it by heart, specifically Isaiah 52 and 53. That's because it's so detailed with, with unmistakable references to, to Christ. It's, it's divided, the book is divided into two chapters. Now we're parachuting in the middle of Isaiah. So just to give you some orientation, if you want to look at Isaiah, there, 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 there are two, two sections. Chapters 1 through 39, and then the second half, which is chapter 40 through the end of the book, which is why we're starting in, in chapter 40. The first half of the book, the first 39 chapters, speak of coming judgment and captivity. And justice prophesied that that came to pass. Less than a hundred years after Isaiah was written, the Babylonian captivity took place and the whole southern kingdom of Judah was overthrown. The second half of the book, where we're starting in verse 1 of chapter 40, chapter 40 through 66, the theme is the promise of God's grace, the salvation through His servant who would come. There would be a Messiah who would offer up his life a ransom and then rise from the dead. And, and that's, that section is where our passage is going to come from. It's a, it's a subsection of this larger part of Isaiah. Look at how Isaiah 40, verse 1 begins. After this pronouncement of judgment for the first 39 chapters, listen to Isaiah, how Isaiah, or I should say look, how Isaiah begins this second section. Verse 1, comfort Oh, comfort my people, says your God. That's a good word after the pronouncement of judgment and judgment and, and judgment. And the comfort that Isaiah is promising comes because of the prophecy of John the Baptist that was given to, to Israel. Look, if you would, where this comfort is going to come from or why he calls them to, to have comfort. In verse 3, a voice is calling or crying, clear the way of the Lord. It's going to be made by one who is crying in the, in the wilderness. And last week, we, we looked in the Gospel of John how blind people need someone to tell them that the light has come. And John is the one who gave that announcement. The lights have been turned on. The lights come. And that's exactly where the New Testament starts. God sending John the Baptist to, to do exactly as Isaiah 40, verse 3 declares. The second half of the book of Isaiah, begins the same place that the New Testament does. And that's no coincidence, because both of them speak of the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah some 700 plus years before it was fulfilled. This prophecy that we're going to look at in Isaiah is so incredible, so clear, so detailed in its prediction and fulfillments, that it's impossible to deny it speaks of anyone other than than Jesus Christ. Jesus himself referred to it, and so did the apostles in the other New Testament writings. 
There are references to Isaiah 53 in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Acts, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. All of those books of the New Testament reference what we're going to read this morning, what Michael has already read for us. And the part of the passage that that speaks of Jesus specifically begins in chapter 42 and goes through chapter 57. It's a massive prophecy. 116 verses. 3,621 words in 10 chapters. All about the, the work of the Messiah, the good news of God's substitutionary servant who would take the place of Israel and all sinners who would repent and, and believe. Every verse prophesies of an anointed one, the servant of God who would come in a very specific way and do a very specific work. Still orientation. Chapter 42 declares the servant will be provided. Chapter 49, the And here those who are sleeping need to be called to, to, to awake. And then at the, the end of chapter 52, the, the work of the servant is presented. And that's where Michael read for us. And he begins this section with, with behold and the question of, of who has believed. Turn over to Isaiah 52 verse 13. And we'll look at the, look at the passage. So everything big and then just zeroing in on the work of this, of this servant, this Messiah that, that would come, which is God's Son. And now you're in the passage that speaks about this, this substitutionary servant. And it begins in verse 13 with behold. Behold my servant. That's what God says. That's how I know He wants you to, to see Christ this morning. God says to you, behold my, my servant, do you see that in verse 13? The Lord up to this point in Isaiah has been simply promising, been sending, been showing why the servant must come and how his work will be profitable. But now, right before he begins to detail this servant, to, to, to speak of, of what he's like and what he will do, he says, behold, look, to focus. Cast your eyes away toward the work of my, of my servant. And as you look, believe. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's the same thing that John says in 1 John. 1 John 1, 1. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And God says to you this morning from the book of Isaiah and to anyone who would read Isaiah, Behold my servant and believe what he has accomplished. Look to him. And believe in what He has done. And so you can do that. He tells us about His work in this one grand presentation with three distinct parts. 
Isaiah 52, verses 13 through the end of 53 that Michael read for us is God's joyous presentation of the Son's saving work. And I said there, there are three parts to this presentation. There's the Son's revealing portrait, verses 1 through 3. The servant's revealing portrait. There's the son's reviling passion in verses 4 through 9. And then there's the Lord's ratifying pleasure. His portrait, his passion, that's his work. And then the pleasure, the satisfaction of God in the work of the, of the son. The first one that he gives us is in verses 1 through 3. And he tells us what his servant will look like, what what his servant will be like, and, and, and how he'll come. Look, if you would, at verse 2. After he tells us who has believed, he asks the question, Behold and believe, and now in verse 2, he begins to describe his servant so he can be recognized. Look at God's description in verse 2. He grew up before him like a, like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He... He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now notice it says, he shall grow up before him. That's before God. Christ will come under the radar of the world, but never out of the eye of God. Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 says, the Lord was born in Bethlehem. That's what we, we just got done singing about. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of, of Judah... Are you not the least among the the princes? For out of you shall come a governor, and you shall rule my people Israel, fulfilling Micah 5, 2. Jesus was raised a carpenter's son, not a uh, a king. And and you know that. In Matthew 1, 16, it declares it. He was reared in Nazareth. Matthew chapter 2, verse, verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a, a Nazarene. Oh, that's purposeful. I mean, every single bit of this is fulfilling the plan of, of God declared right here beforehand. He, he, he's going to come in a specific, in a specific way. Nazareth was a, was a place of, of lowly reputation. To be called a Nazarene meant one who is despised or detestable. Nazareth was, uh, Nazareth was, was rural. Kentucky or Tennessee, I think. Probably, I won't say West Virginia this morning, Jim. It's not New York City. There are a few hundred people in Nazareth when Jesus was born. This portrait shows not only will He be born in lowly circumstances, but He'll, he'll come in humble form. Look at verse 2 again. He has no stately form. He grew up before Him like a, like a tender shoot, like a like a root out of a parched ground. He's, he's going to come in lowly circumstances. He's also going to come in humble form. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him. And he explains what he means. No appearance that, that we should be attracted to Him. He's not going to look like a king when He comes. That's what God's saying. The King James says no comeliness. There's no beauty or appearance that we should be attracted to Him. God's Son will not be exalted royalty or wear kingly robes when he comes. But he's going to come in a, in a lowly form. He will not present himself as king, but he'll be recognizable to those who look through the Word of God by faith. 
And Isaiah's point is you and I would not have picked him based on his circumstances. How would you expect the Son of God to come to the earth? How would you expect the Messiah, the promised Messiah to come? I mean, just from a human standpoint. Look at the leaders that people follow today. They don't follow, follow humble and meek and mild people, poor and destitute. They follow the ones that can, that can, can lead and can bolster uh, uh, followers and, and proclaim the loudest. Isaiah's point is we're looking for the Son of God who, who, come, who would come in the flesh. We, we would have picked somebody else, like a stately man, someone who looked handsome, Someone who seemed like he was able to rule. Exactly what Israel did with Saul, right? Not David. That's purposeful. Or we would have chosen a great warrior. Not a man who, who came from nowhere special. But God's servant was lowly. The Lord Jesus ate with humble sinners. He mixed with, with repentant tax collectors. He touched unclean lepers. He lifted the head of adulteresses. He, he knew people that others wanted to forget. He, he did things that proper religious kings seemingly would not do. He said of himself in Matthew eight twenty, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has, has no place to lay his head. There was no palace. There was no treasury. There were no robes. There's no crown. He was a man tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And this portrait also shows that he'll be acquainted with grief and sorrow. He'll be despised. He'll be rejected. Look, if you would, at verse 3. What will the Messiah look like when he comes? And God's showing us right here. He's giving us the picture so you'll be able to recognize him. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hid their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. We didn't give him the, the proper recognition that, that he rightly deserved. And no one knew who he was. And most of those who heard him rejected him. I mean, if you walk, if you remember when we walk through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, here is Jesus coming. Out of Nazareth to, to Galilee, he's going around Galilee, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom after the baptism of, of John the Baptist. He's doing miraculous things, the signs of, of the Messiah. And as long as he did something for people, they came. But, but by the end of March, uh, Mark 6, he only has a group of 12 genuine followers. And that's the purpose of the parable of the, of the soils. I mean, the disciples are sitting there going, you've come as the Messiah, we're following you, where's the kingdom? Where are all the followers? And Jesus has to tell them, the problem is, is not the seed, it's not the gospel. The problem is the soil of, of men's hearts. He was rejected by his own town. His family came to Capernaum to seize him because they said he was crazy, they thought he was a nut. The Bible says he could do no mighty works in Nazareth. He came from a lonely town, and even the lonely town, even the lowly town, rejected him. He was rejected by his own people. The majority of his own people rejected him. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He was called in the Gospels one who works miracles by the powers of Satan, by the, by the religious heads of apostate Judaism. He sorrowed and wept over Jerusalem who hid their face, as it were, the Bible said. He was mocked and accused of things he didn't commit in Matthew 27, 29 through 30. 
The crowd who sang Hosanna one day showed up to watch him die a week later. When a choice was given between the Messiah and a known sinner, he was rejected at the place of a murderer, Barabbas. Once he was on the cross, even on the cross, they said, they mocked him, if you're the Son of God, come down and save yourself. He was despised, he was rejected, a man acquainted with rejected, uh, rejection, and yet he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this lowly-born, humble in appearance, despised and rejected servant, although unrecognized by most, would do a saving work for those who would behold and believe. And that's the second presentation that God gives. There's the Son's passion. Isaiah shows us not only what he will look like, what he will be like whenever he comes, 700 plus years before he ever shows up, but now he shows us the work that he will do. You'll not only know what the, what the Messiah will look like, you'll know the work that, that he will come to accomplish. What will he do? Well, here it is. Look, if you would, at verse 4. Surely our, our griefs he himself bore. He's borne our griefs. And our sorrows he carried away, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This verse serves as a transition between who to what he would do. Who he, who he was to what he would do. He, he's born our, our griefs. It's a, it's a prophetic perfect in the past tense. Notice it says, surely our griefs he himself as born. It's as if it's already happened. And verse 5 through 10 tells us of the, of the servant's work. Here's the whole work of the gospel presented 700 years before Jesus came. The substitutionary crucifixion, his subsequent burial, and his victorious resurrection. All presented right here. Look at what verse 5 says about his work. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we were healed. He was wounded, literally pierced. He was bruised, crushed. He was scourged and, and stripped, striped. He was, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. And back in chapter 52, it says His appearance was marred more than any man. You say, did that happen? Listen to Matthew 26. They spat in his face and beat him with their fists, as, and others slapped him. Matthew 27, 22. And they all said unto him, Let him be crucified. Matthew 27, verse 26. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 28. And they stripped him. Verse 29 and 30 of Matthew. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him. The second time Christ was, was spit upon, once by Jews and now by Gentiles, representing the two delineations of the world. They took a reed and began to, to beat him on the head and and after they mocked him, they took a scarlet robe off of him and, and put his own garments back on him and, and led him away to crucify him. Look at verse 7 of Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he, he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the, to the slaughter. He was oppressed, afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. Listen to Matthew 27. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard of even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Pilate said, Don't you know? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you or to release you? And Jesus was silent. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. Look at verse 8. Right there it is. Here's his death. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. It means he died. Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus, when he cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his, his spirit. Look at verse 9 of Isaiah. His grave was assigned with wicked men. He'll be buried. And yet he was with a rich man in his death. Jesus was crucified with two criminals. His grave was assigned with the wicked. The religious leaders tried to align Christ with thieves to discredit Him, and even those thieves proclaimed that Jesus was exactly who He, who he said He was. And one of them even proclaimed His deity. Listen to Luke 23, verse 39. And one of the criminals who was crucified was hurling abuses at Him, but the other said, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done no wrong, declaring Christ's innocence. And then he declares his deity. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he was with the rich man at his death, Isaiah says. He was laid in the tomb of, Jer- uh, of Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew 27, verse 57 through 60. When it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. What was the purpose of all of this? There's the portrait, what he'll look like so you could recognize him. Behold and believe. Here's what he'll look like. Here's the way the Messiah will come whenever he comes. What will he do whenever he comes? Here's the work that, that he'll do. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. And what's the purpose? What's the purpose of all this? Why did the Son of God, as God's servant, suffer all of these things it was to make it was to make an atonement for sin for our sin look at verse 5 notice what verse 5 says who all this happened for but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastising of our well-being being fell upon him by his scourging we are healed our iniquities, our transgressions, our chastisement, our sorrow, 
And look at verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on, on Him. Three times it says all of us, everyone, all of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And there's your guilt described. And my guilt described. You have sinned. You've gone astray. You've fallen short. You've failed to measure up to the standard of God, which is His holiness, His law, right and wrong. You've transgressed. You turned away. You stepped across the line. There were clear lines and you stepped over those lines and in your corrupt in heart, your, your iniquity, your, your rebelliousness, the, the thing that's in you that, that, that causes you not to even come to God whenever He's offered to you because you, you want to go your own way. You've willfully rejected your Creator and have purposely turned your own way, the Bible says. And yet Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, bears that sin and shoulders the consequences and wrath as God's provision. The phrase, God laid our iniquity on Him, means that God treated Him as if He had committed every sin ever committed by every believer, even though He was purposely, perfectly innocent of any sin. That's substitution. He stood in your place. So that the wrath could be spent and justice satisfied. So that He could give to the account of sinners the righteousness of God treating them as if they had done only the righteous acts of Christ. That's justification. The Bible says he was successful. Did Jesus accomplish his work? Yes, he did. And that's the third presentation. It's the Lord's pleasure. Look, if you would, at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord. The Lord was pleased to crush him, to bruise him, to, to put him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. That's a shocking verse. It says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy of pleasing the Father. It doesn't mean that the cross was joyful in and of itself. He, he suffered for sinners. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. It was the joy on the other side of the cross, the joy of completing this plan that the Father has laid out. The Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it to, to your heart and your, your life. Jesus went to the cross for the joy of pleasing the Father on the other side of the cross. Shocking. But this verse is even more shocking. I think this is one of the most shocking verses in all of the Bible. It should take your breath away if you know anything about Scripture. Verse 10 says, The Lord was pleased. It 
pleased the Lord to bruise Christ. The word means to take pleasure in something. It's the same word used in Ezekiel 18.32 when God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, says the Lord, wherefore repent and live. God takes no pleasure in the death of the sinner, but He took pleasure in the death of His Son for sinners. That's amazing. The portrait of God's servant, His life climaxes in His passion on the cross and death, and all of that is the satisfaction of God's wrath, to satisfy God's wrath so salvation could be offered. If this doesn't happen, salvation cannot be offered because there's nothing in me and nothing in you that could satisfy God. But God is completely satisfied with His Son. Isn't that exactly what God declares at the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well Satisfied, well pleased. And here, his wrath was appeased. It means sin's fire was put out. And look at verse 10. The Lord was pleased to to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render his soul, that's Christ, as an offering for sin, that's for your sin. And verse 11 says, he will see it, that's God, And he'll be satisfied. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's propitiation by atonement. The son is successful. Two times in this verse it's mentioned. God's pleasure to bruise him. And at the end of verse 10, in the good pleasure of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital, will prosper in his hand. You say... You say, I've tried, I, I can't live it. How, could I ever, how can I ever measure up? How, uh, you're right, you can't. And that's the whole point of the gospel. He did. <laughs> he was successful. You can't fail before God because you already have. And he that believes on Him will not be put to shame, the Bible says. You trust in Him, you're not going to come up empty on that day. Look at verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul, that's Christ, and be satisfied. And as the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied, satiated, propitiated. And because of that, we will receive the benefits. What are the benefits? Verse 5, our healing from sin and peace. Verse 10, atonement and satisfaction. Verse 11, our justification. Verse 12, our intercession. Because of the work of Christ and God's pleasure in Him, the Lord will will raise Him from the dead. Look at verse 10, if you would. The Lord was pleased if He will render Himself as a guilt offering. And notice what the next line says. He will see His offspring, His seed. He will prolong His days. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. That's future. He was offered as a sacrifice. He was bruised. And now he has a future. He was buried. He was laid in a a rich man's grave. But he's coming out of that grave. He has a future. He's going to rise from the dead, Isaiah says. 
Why is the resurrection so important that we celebrate it every Sunday, this Sunday? Why does Paul say that without it, everything that you and I believe is empty? Because it's God's confirmation that Jesus' work was accepted. Jesus was the first fruits. He, he unlocks the door to the grave so, so that we could come out. Have you ever, have you ever met someone who, who came back from the grave? I have. His name is Jesus Christ. And God confirmed his, his satisfaction with Christ. There's nothing else that needs to be done. As we said last week, he's, he's not still hanging on a crucifix. He's, he's seated at the right hand of God. His priestly work is done. Because his work has been, has been fulfilled and it, it, it satisfied Christ. Or it, uh, it, uh, it satisfied God. And God confirms that. That priestly work by raising him from the dead. The resurrection was God's confirmation that Jesus was His servant. God doesn't raise a heretic from the dead. That He accomplished His purpose. And that if you come to Him, you'll have a living Savior, not a dead sage. Follow any religion in the world and and you'll follow a man who is dead or who will be dead. But Jesus Christ is alive forevermore and you will be too if you repent and come to Him. And God will confirm the work of Christ in you by raising you from the dead one day. That's the power of the resurrection. And because of that, God will highly exalt Him. Look at verse 12. He's going to exalt Christ one day, this, this servant, because of that, that work, because God was pleased with His work. Therefore, I will allot Him a portion with the great... The one who was born in lowly circumstances, he will now be allotted a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. And Christ is at the right hand of the Father this very moment, at a place of honor until the trumpet. And upon his return, he'll gather his portion, that's the church, and then later will come his crowning as the king of the universe. And then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Well, it tells us right here in verse 12. Because He poured out Himself to death and He was numbered with the transgressors. That's you. He made the intercession for you, a transgressor. And God will glorify Jesus for all eternity because He is the Lamb that was slain for sinners. And that plan was from before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us. And here, 700 years before Christ came, God prophesied that He would. And now you sit here before God today, hearing about that work, being told, Behold and believe. Who has believed our report? What's God's report? His portrait? been painted. How is he going to come? What will he look like? How do you know the Messiah? Right here he is. What will he do when he comes? He's going to have a, a work of passion. He's going to die on the cross. He's not going to be a king that's going to overthrow. The first thing that he's going to do is give a ransom. And then God's pleasure and satisfaction, and that brings to you all of the benefits. And God says, will you believe it? Will you heed it? You say, I, I believe. 
but how do I know? How do I come? How, how do I go from, from, from hearing about this and saying that, that sounds true? I, I affirm it. How do I go from there to, to getting the benefits of this? How do I, how do I enter the kingdom? Well, turn over to Isaiah 55. In verse 1, because God tells you exactly how. Here's the invitation. God says, behold. And then He shows you the portrait. And He says that, so you'll believe. And now He tells you exactly how to come. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come if you're willing. Come if you're hungry and you thirst for righteousness, meaning you recognize your need. Come without payment. And then there's a call to repentance. Here's a wide open door with everything that you need to do, spelled out very clearly. Everyone who is willing. There is no sin that is excluded. There's no list of what God says He won't forgive. No list of what you must start doing. There is no sinner that God will turn away that, that comes. The only condition that He makes is that you, you come to Him and the way that you'll be willing to come to Him is to hear the Gospel and the Spirit of God work in your heart. And so if you're hearing this morning and you're being drawn to Christ, that's the work of God. Everyone who thirsts come to the waters. Those who are hungry with no way to eat. Is there a hunger and there's a thirst in your heart? Is something missing that's there? It doesn't come from your flesh or from the world. John 14, 4 says, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. John 7, 37, On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and called out with a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be satisfied. Those who come are weary of eating the ashes of the world. Are, are you tired of looking and never, never being satisfied? And I want you to notice you have nothing. You bring nothing to get in. This work that happens in your heart when you hear of Christ, the drawing that takes place by the, by the Holy Spirit, there's a hunger and there's a thirst that's there. And then that brings you to a dilemma. <laughs> I have nothing to offer. And look at how verse 1 ends. Come and buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't go into the grocery store and put a loaf of bread or milk up on the, up on the counter and then let them ring it up and then walk out with it. I don't let them, you, you, you're not able to do that, right? You don't go in and, and charge something. There, there's a debt for, for whatever it is that you need, and then you just walk out and Walmart or Kroger's or whoever says, says it's, it's totally fine. But that's exactly what God says right here, doesn't it? 
Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You know why? Because it's already been paid for. Anyone who recognizes their need can come, and those who come, come with nothing to offer God. You have absolutely nothing God wants and nothing God needs. <laughs> and you must come to Him without effort or work on your part that you could claim. Because He has paid debt, your debt, He now offers living waters to you because of Christ's payment. And look at what verse 2 says. Why, why do you look anywhere else? Verse 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread? You're, you're spending your life for whatever will not satisfy. Why are you spending your life for... for why are you spending your money for not bread and your rage, uh, wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Are you tired of spending your life on what will not satisfy? Come to Jesus. And you say, how? Look at verse 6. There's a call to repentance. You realize your need. You have a desire. You realize you cannot offer anything to God, and yet you seek Him anyway. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon while Him He, uh, while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the righteous man His thoughts. Seek. Realize your need and turn to Him. Call, cry out, confess your sinfulness, your need, and repent. Turn from yourself and your sin. And look at what it says. And He will have compassion on you. Will you? Will you repent? Will you turn to Christ? You have nothing to offer Him. You have nothing He needs. Everything that you need, He's already provided. And He invites you freely to come. And it starts in humility. As you turn to Him, and you call to Him, and you turn away from your yourself. Should you bow your heads?